The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. From the book of Genesis, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Any number of authors tell us the end is in the beginning. T.S. Eliot says it. Samuel Beckett says it. And even Aristotle says it, if you want to go back that far. T.S. Eliot, in his poem, Little Gidding, writes, With the drawing of this love and the voice of this calling, we shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. If you were to read this morning's reading from Genesis to a hundred people and ask, what is the main point of this reading? You might hear something about the human condition, a condition of sin and death. You might hear something about the curse of endless toil, or how we humans are condemned to live a life of pain. You'd likely hear very little about a good and patient God intent on the restoration and rehabilitation of his most tremendous and singularly honored creation. You'd hear very little about hope, very little about love, and least of all, anything about the gospel. But the end is in the beginning, truly. The truth of the fall is that we as human beings were given over to alienation. Alienation from God, alienation from each other, alienation from the creation, and even alienation within our very selves. The way the Genesis account relates this reality is that the man and woman hide themselves from the presence of God as if such a thing were possible. They hide in fear, aware not only of judgment but of their own nakedness. Their eyes are opened, just as the serpent said they would be, and I'm not sure they like the result. What good are open eyes if perception itself is damaged by alienation from the creator of all things? It is in this state of hiding and nakedness that the Lord God finds man and woman. They hide at the very sound of him, and it is here that one of the most miraculous and unexpected events happens. God seeks them out. He says, where are you? One gets the sense that he cannot bear to destroy them, cannot bear to see them die. The divine affection for his most perfect creation is beyond our understanding. In the book of the prophet Hosea, we have a window into this incredible love of God for a wayward lover. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. But for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. And so God comes asking, where are you? We see that this story is not about the curse of the fall and the human condition, primarily anyway. It is not primarily about being surrendered to a life of toil or pain. It is about the all-surpassing grace and mercy of God. It is about a marriage feast. It is about the joy and sanctity of human life, life that God himself does not forsake. And as we will see, it is about the triumph of the woman by the grace and mercy of God who heals her barrenness and gives her victory over the curse of death. First, we see that the serpent is cursed 
The curse of the serpent happens first in the sequence of events because the tempter is always judged more harshly than the child. If a parent notices that their child is tempted to sin by another child, the parent's wrath is reserved for the other parent, not their own child. What is wrong with that kid's mom, we ask? Not what's wrong with my kid. And it's right that we should ask this. The serpent's curse has been often understood by the church to be what is called the Proto-Evangelion, a first gospel, a first stating of the triumph of God and man, of God the God-man over Satan's tyranny by the wood of the cross. And depending on how the text is understood, the triumph of the woman over the tempter. Irenaeus would later write of this, the enemy would not have been justly conquered unless it had been a man made of woman who conquered him. For it was by a woman that he had power over man from the beginning, setting himself up in opposition to man. God places enmity between the serpent and the woman. You'll notice this. The serpent is always an agent of death and destruction, and the woman is always an agent of life. Her very body, the arena in which new life is created. Thus, at the end of this morning's reading, she is called, even after the fall, Eve the mother of all living. Satan will always be filled with hatred and contempt for mothers and motherhood in general. It should be no surprise that our nation's current captivity to the demonic evil of abortion is not only an attack on human life, but an attack on the dignity and calling of motherhood. It's an attack on women. It is no surprise that this is joined to an attack on marriage, which can only be explained theologically. Man and woman show forth together the end of the story, an eternal marriage between the God of all creation and his beloved, the church. A marriage in which life is returned to us. Second, the woman is cursed. And the woman is cursed in two ways. The first is an increase in the pain of childbirth. Oh, that's not fair at all, is it? And the second is the curse of a desire for her husband who will rule over him, over her, also not fair. To illustrate this, a husband comes home after a long day and he has a terrible pain in his back. And he says to his wife, the mother of their children, this pain is unbearable, it is unimaginable. And she laughs at him. She knows severe pain better than he ever will. But why? Well, the pain of childbirth is not without a purpose. It reminds women that they, even as fallen human beings, have a special vocation to be agents of new life, a role which men can never have. They have joy wrapped up in their labor in a way that men can never have. Now this is, of course, made manifestly clear in the Incarnation. Mary has an essential role as the chosen creature of God. She is not a goddess, but the embodiment of Israel, the true daughter of Zion. As Pope Benedict writes, to leave women out of the whole of theology would be to deny creation and election and thereby nullify revelation. God's intention had been to see woman be an equal partner to her husband, to share in every good, to have mastery over creation with him, and now this is disrupted. But I should say, specifically in Christian marriage, we see a foreshadowing of the end of this curse, a restoration of equality, particularly in Paul's admonishment that husbands should love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The submission to rule which God speaks of in this curse is not meant to promote misogyny, 
but to provide clarity to all human beings as to our role in creation, that of one who must be continually submitted to the lordship of God, and for the Christians specifically, the lordship of Christ. Here, rule implies obedience, and obedience is not a terribly popular word today. It is understood to be a cold, exacting thing, the very opposite of love. But Christians understand that obedience is necessary to love. Without obedience, there cannot be love. C.S. Lewis once wrote that people do not, fall, do not fail in obedience through lack of love, but lose love because they never attempted obedience. Let me say it again. People do not fail in obedience through lack of love. In other words, they don't fail to be obedient because they don't love. They lose love because they have never attempted obedience. What we Christians mean by obedience is freedom from obligations to others so that we can give ourselves freely to one and one only. In Christian marriage, a woman forsakes all others, the man forsakes all others, and we become devoted in heart and mind to one and one only. Eve's life is to be centered on her husband. She is to be free of the interference of others so that she can truly love him, and it's not an easy thing to do. In turn, Adam, by giving himself over to his wife and her only, makes her an object of love, not gratification. In this way, husband and wife show forth the love which God pours out in an unbelieving, sinful world, giving himself to us. He asks for our obedience. And when the Christian aims at obedience, love for God flourishes. If you love me, remember this, if you love me, Jesus says, you will what? Keep my commandments. Indeed, as we heard in the gospel reading today, whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. Clearly, Jesus does not mean to demean his own mother. I've heard that from far too many people who say, yeah, he's just being mean to his mama. Well, let me set that aside for a moment. No, she is the one who has submitted herself to the rule of God as to the care of her husband. She is the one who, submitting to the will of God, brings forth the Savior of her nation. Rather, Jesus is stating that obedience to the perfect will of God remakes the covenant family. God remakes a people of his own, set apart for good works, set apart to love him wholly, and to love their neighbor as themselves. Jesus is not here rejecting his mother, not at all. Indeed, she is the perfect model for this obedient submission to the will of God being bound up in love. She simply wants to be near her son. To be parted from him is agony, and it should be agony for us. Thirdly, and lastly, we see the curse of the man. Because, God says, you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you and you shall eat plants of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man is cursed, quite simply, with a life of toil, unrewarding work. Where before the ground brought forth vegetation, naturally it must now be worked and weeded. He will eat bread, bread that he worked for, his face covered with sweat, 
And the word for bread in Hebrew here is lahem, which means not only bread, but toil and struggle. It refers to the struggle of kneading bread, milling the flour, and all that work that is needed to gain this simple food. You and I are detached from that work, of course. Some of you, some, some of us don't mill our own wheat. I know there are a number of crunchy cons here, but some of us don't mill our own wheat, and we don't need our own bread. But it has been for people in history a struggle, a daily struggle, a daily obedience. And it is no coincidence that the perfect man is born in the city of Bethlehem, meaning simply together house of bread or house of toil. It is a clear sign toil and labor will be subsumed, subsumed by an eternal Sabbath, not merely the sleep of death, but a risen life of rest in the presence of God. Before, after the kneading comes what? Rising. The curse of toil is like the curse of pain given to the woman, not meant to last forever, meant to be taken over by that which is supernatural, namely the life of grace. Hear this part again. In toil you shall eat of it. Some translations say, in pain you shall eat of it. This bread, as delightful as good bread can be, will often be a painful thing to eat. Now we know this intuitively, even as we're removed from agriculture. No matter how hard we worked, we go to the grocery store or restaurant, spend untold dollars, and eat. And the ephemeral nature of that meal is the cause of sadness. It doesn't last. It doesn't stay with us. I'm always kind of underwhelmed when I check out at HEB. Really? That much for all this? This is two days worth of food. It's fleeting. It goes away. We'll definitely be hungry again. Eating can be filled with pleasure, but the thoughtful person knows the pain of it. I'm thinking a lot of Anthony Bourdain this past week, a man who seemed to suck the marrow out of this life, a life filled with the very best food and visits to just about every country on the planet. Many people could think easily, this man lived a good life. What an incredible life. And in the end, it wasn't enough. People were surprised that his life was a life of pain. You might feel regret or sorrow that life seems to be unending toil and pain, but take heart. The Lord has given you this so that you might hunger for the bread that endures, so that you might hunger for supernatural life, so that you might hunger for his grace. You might be aching this morning for true food. Take heart, the Lord feeds you this day at this very place with his very self, a glorious thing that Adam only hoped for, but did not see as you do. You and I, dear friends, do not serve a God of wrath and punishment, but a God who is continually outpouring himself to his people, continually wooing us with his love, continually calling us to be his people, a people who love him, a people who are obedient to him, a people who have been redeemed by his never-failing love. May we, cursed as we are, rejoice in his name. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.